We believe the church is essential. Yesterday, I was with my son, Luke, and he said, what are you preaching on today? And I said, I'm I'm preaching on the fact that the church is essential. He said, oh, Dad, you're going political on him today, huh? I said, nope, we're not going political. We are going theological. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about the church. Acts chapter 2, and as we think and look at what the Bible says about the church, we find that it doesn't really make any difference what the government says. The church is essential. Acts chapter 2, we pick up in verse number 42. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And with that, let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would take these next few moments and as we uh, just open your word, give us ears to hear, a heart that's open and willing to your truth, And then, Lord, help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Shape us, transform us today. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. I I love the church. I grew up in church, but I really, really love the church. My actual first job, outside of cutting grass for some neighbors here and there, was that I was a church custodian. In middle school, my sister was in high school, and she got the the main job, and she kind of tagged, I tagged along with her. And believe it or not, I made $2.25 an hour uh, as a church custodian when I was in um, middle school. But I think I've done just about everything in the church over the last uh, probably 40 years, as you think about uh, cleanup days and work days, but running sound and leading music and obviously preaching, teaching. I've worked with nursery and preschool and children and students and adults. I have uh, been there and celebrated the joy of births and have held hands with those who stepped into eternity. I have had my elbows down in the backings of a toilet, and I have been up on the roof helping to clean the steeple. 
I have done a lot. Everything except if you know what the WMU is, I have not been involved in the Women's Missionary Union. That's about the only thing that I have not done in church. I, I love the church. As, as we look at what the Bible says about the church, it is essential for us to understand that the Lord would not have us to live as lone rangers in the faith. That we as believers are to be part of a body and part of a family. And the difficulty in the times in which uh, we find the church being born was in the first century, uh, in first century Roman Empire, where idolatry and immorality was just part of life, and where emperor worship was pretty well uh, the standard quo, a status quo of the day, and the standard for all. They would worship their emperors, and they would live how they want, and they would uh, step on people and hurt them, and it was a very vile and difficult society. And then the Lord shows his faith and, and, and shines down into people's hearts and they come to receive Jesus as Savior. And now they find that they're not agreeing with emperor worship and they don't want to be involved in the idolatry and immorality anymore. But who is going to be the one to stand up and encourage them and to, to challenge them and to provide hope for them and strength for them and a family for them? Well, that's exactly why God gave us the church. The Lord promised and then delivered a body for us to share and to grow in so that we would not be alone in the faith. You can take a hot coal and it can be just, I mean, hot as can be. And you grab a pair of tongs and you pull that out and put it on the, the brick or stone mantle the hearth area, and you find that just in a matter of a few moments, that heat and that light are gone. And what was once fiery hot and bright now is just cold and gray and ashen. Well, that can happen when we as believers are not in a fellowship called the church. So I want us to think about why the church is essential. I want to talk about three thoughts on, on why the church is essential. First off, the church is essential because of the investment of Jesus. Because of the investment of Jesus. And let me give you some verses, and if you're taking notes, write these verses down at the side. But Jesus, uh, man, he, he looked and knew that there was going to be a need. So, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, we find that Jesus is visiting with his disciples, and he asked Peter the question, who do people say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the, the right answer. He gives it after people say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. He says, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then speaks to him and says, Peter, listen, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that. My father has revealed that to you. And upon this rock, not on Peter, he's just a little stone, but upon the rock of what you just said, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He says this in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my 
church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus made a promise. The promise of Jesus is this. I will build my church. Jesus had a promise that he delivered to that early band of believers to say, look, I'm with you now. But the promise of Jesus is I will build my church. Church, when we look and we think of Jesus' work and Jesus' scope and the investment that Jesus made, Jesus promised that he was going to build his church. But not only do we think about the promise of Jesus and and the sense of him going to be the one who's going to create and sustain the church, but then we also think about not only the promise, but we think of, of, of Jesus and the payment that he made for the church. The payment that he made for the church. Two passages in particular, again, just kind of stand out as we think about Jesus and, and his investment in the church. He, in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 28, Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus. And he tells them this, shepherd the church or the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Shepherd the flock which he purchased with his own blood. What does that mean? That means that all of us who are now believers are only believers because of one way and one person. That Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That all of us have accrued a debt, a penalty, a punishment because of the things that we have thought or said or done that are wrong. And because we have this sin attached to our life, someone had to satisfy the justice of God and take our punishment. And Jesus is the one who did that. Let me ask you today, have you ever thought something wrong, said something wrong, done something wrong? Well, all of us know that we have. So how can we get in a right relationship with God when we've done wrong? The only way is what Acts 20, 28, it says that he purchased the church with his own blood, that he paid the penalty for our sin. Then, guys, over in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 25, it tells us this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, we took a look at those two passages, and we think about Jesus paid for the church with his blood and with his life. That's the investment of Jesus. And at the moment that we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we are part of what is a universal church. But that term and that thought of a universal church is used in just a couple of instances in scripture. The word that is used for church, ecclesia, the called out ones, is used 114 times in the New Testament. 109 times it is in reference to a local church, a local body of believers. And so we think about Jesus and his sacrifice. He paid the price so that we as a church can stand together as brothers and sisters committed to the Lord, committed to each other, serving as a family and as a body, fulfilling God's purpose together of worship, evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, and ministry, celebrating in worship and partaking of the Lord's Supper together, sharing in baptism together. That is what the called out ones, the church is all about. So Jesus promised that he would give the church. Then Jesus paid the price so that we could have a church. So what do you think about the church? 
I think Jesus loves the church. He purchased the church with his blood, Acts 20, 28. He laid down his life for the church. A few years ago, I, I, I'm always kind of looking for used cars. I just, one of those things, I just, I enjoy it. Matter of fact, I'm looking for used cars even, even, you know, yesterday. I'm looking for used cars. I just always looking for a deal. I uh, have a large family. There's always a niece or a nephew or somebody who needs a car. Now, I do not work on cars. I am not a mechanical person. So I want old, reliable cars. I'm always looking for one because, like I said, I got a lot of nieces and nephews. Always someone in my family is looking for a car. A few years ago, I was with an older gentleman. And uh, we're, we're in the car together. And he said, yeah, I'm thinking about selling my car. I said, great, I, you know. What do you think you, you might want for it? Then this was an older car, but a nice car. And he said, well, I'll let you know in a couple of days. He came back a couple of days later and he gave me this price for his car. And I thought, this guy really does love his car. That car, that price of that car was way higher than I thought it was, it was worth. And way higher than I thought that I would ever pay for. But see, he bought the car new. And he babied the car, took care of the car. He loved the car, but he just didn't really need it anymore. But he still had this endearing value that he placed on the car. And it was a lot more valuable to him than it was for me to try and buy. I was looking for a deal. You know, I'm afraid many of us are kind of approaching church like that. We know Jesus loved the church. We know he paid the price for the church. But me, eh, I don't think I'm quite as committed to that. I'm not sure that I'm really willing to pay the price or make sacrifices for the church. I, I, that, that, that may be a little higher than, than I want to, to pay. or That may be a little more service and sacrifice than I'm willing to do. Where Jesus would say, look, I gave my life for the church. I laid down my and shed my blood for the church. And we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, we can kind of take it or leave it. It's raining. You know, we've got other things to do. And if we can fit it in our schedule, then maybe we'll think about it. And that's the way many believers are looking at the church today. You know, there are times when you go on vacation, I understand that. And there are people home sick today. I understand that. They're watching online or will watch online this week. I understand that. But, you know, I think that that one of the, the, the keys that show that we're growing in Christ is, is that our mind and our heart are supposed to be moved by the same thing that move his heart and that our lives should be committed to the same things that the Lord's committed to. And we find Jesus absolutely, unequivocally, Committed to the church. And yet, sometimes the, our culture in our day, when the fish are biting and the ball field's calling and everything else is going on around us, we kind of put the church on the back burner and think, it will just be there next week. But not only do we think about the investment of Jesus and 
the promise and the payment of the church. But take your Bibles if you have them this morning and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Let me just encourage you, or if you have your phone, just always make sure that you have your Bible. I know we try sometimes to put the main verses up on Scripture, but I, I want to show you something else. I want us to think about the investment of Jesus, not only in his promise and payment, but the presence of Jesus. Let's think about his presence. John chapter, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, John is here speaking, he, and he is in... Uh, the Isle of Patmos, he's been banished because of his following of Christ. And uh, he says it in verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He heard a voice behind him like a trumpet. He turns around and notice what he sees in verse number 12. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay, everybody remember seven golden lampstands. All right, don't forget seven golden lampstands. We're going to come back to seven golden lampstands in just a minute. So don't forget seven golden lampstands. That would be seven of them. Seven golden lampstands. He says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. So there's the seven golden lampstands, but there is one like the Son of Man. And he's dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. And the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame, and his feet like bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of Niagara Falls, cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was shining like like the sun at full strength. John then falls down and it's like, whoa, man, I, I'm going to die and I'm, I'm afraid to death. And the Lord lifts him up. But notice in verse number 20, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels, are the messengers of the seven churches. And notice what it says. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here we see the picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is that he is there in the middle of the church. That's where Jesus wants his picture taken. Among the seven golden lampstands, the churches that are going to be written to in this book. Jesus shows that his presence is in the church. Now, we love the picture in Revelation 19, verse 11 and following, of Jesus coming riding in on a white horse, and on his head are many crowns, and his eyes are like flames of fire, and he carries a sharp, or out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and written on him is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We love to think about Jesus when he comes in victory, but here the picture is... Jesus is that church. Jesus' presence is in the middle of the lampstands, which begs the question, where are we? That when we come to church, we come in in a special way, and I understand the Lord lives in our life now, I understand the Holy Spirit indwells us, I understand that the Lord is with me, but when we come, the Lord shows his presence. That's an awesome picture. That's an awesome and wonderful picture. That as I come, I come and I think about the one who has hair like wool and his feet are bronze and his eyes like flames of fire. He's here. He's here. He's here. Do you see him?
Do you see evidences of him? Do you see him in the love and the fellowship and the care and the hearts? Do you see him as you worship and, and, and you come in and you're encouraged by others and you're lifted up? Jesus is at work and he shows his presence in his church. The church is essential because of the investment of Jesus. Secondly, as we think about the church and we slide back to Acts chapter 2, the church is essential because of the impact on believers. Because of the impact on believers. Now listen, we come to church for Jesus. We come to church for him. It's all about him. And sometimes when you come in and you say, man, I just don't feel like worshiping today. Well, what does that what does that mean? You were never called to, you know, this is the day the Lord has made. If you feel like it, rejoice in him. I mean, that's just not in scripture anywhere. It doesn't make, I, I, I was standing up to, and, and I preached and I told somebody, man, I didn't feel very good after I, when I was preaching after I preached. He said, what do your feelings have to do with any of this? Your feelings don't have to do with any of this. It's a matter of commitment and worship. The church is essential because of the impact on believers. In other words, the Lord does not want us to try to be a lone ranger in the faith. He gave us a family, a body, a local group of believers who stand with us and encourage with us, encourage us and weep with us. This is the place to love and be loved, to serve and be served, to minister and be ministered to. And there are calls that the Lord has us to do in a corporate context in Acts chapter 2. Take your Bible with me and look in Acts, back in Acts chapter 2 again. And as we look at that, notice what happens in, in this passage. Acts chapter 2. The impact on believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship of breaking bread, to the fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. Then notice down in verse 46. Every day. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread and from house to house. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Hebrews 10 would put it this way. Hebrews 10, 25. That we are to not forsake the assembling together of ourselves. And then he would go on to say, as is the manner of some but we are to exhort or encourage one another daily, especially as the day approaches. What is the day? The day of Jesus coming. He's saying, don't you stop. When Jesus said, I will build my church, then he's going to build his church and the church is relevant today. It was relevant yesterday. It is relevant in God's future plan until the day. When he calls us on that day, then we'll have that time in heaven together. But he says, don't forsake assembling together, but you come together and you encourage and you come together. And one of the keys and essential things that we do together is that we worship. God designed the church for corporate worship. So they devote themselves. They come and they praise together. They are involved in worship. 
we come together and we think about the Lord's presence in us. And as the Lord's presence is shining and singing and, and showing love through you. And, and even when I come in sometimes and I'm, I'm just not 100% and I think, man, look at them praising the Lord. And look how God has worked in their life. It gives me a heart that says, man, I want to give him the glory that he deserves. Why am I here? Because of what Jesus has done. Why am I part of a church? Because of what Jesus has done. How can I know my sins are forgiven? Because of what Jesus has done. And now, because of that, he deserves glory and honor individually and corporately. So there's the aspect of worship. Then there's the aspect of discipleship. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's discipleship. They're growing in their faith. And remember what Romans 10, 17 says, that faith comes by hearing the word of God. So they're growing in their faith. They're becoming more like Jesus. They're they're uh, understanding the, the depth of the Old Testament and how God moved. They are understanding the truth of who Jesus is in the New Testament. And they're growing to be more like Christ. There's this aspect of discipleship as they're walking closer to Christ. Then there's the aspect of fellowship, that they are together, that they are meeting together, one, one another. They're gathering in the temple, and they're enjoying the fellowship with one another. They're enjoying each other's company. This is one of the hearts of, of our corporate experience in church. Without fellowship, if we just come in and, and we just open the Bible and we read it and we're all cold, it, it, our theology becomes stale and lifeless. No, that's not the way it should be. Yes, we should understand the desire to know what the Bible says and understand theology, but it should be lived out with this rich love and care and kindness that we show one another. Jesus would even say, it is by the love that you have for one another that they will know that you are my disciples. And that love begins right here at home in the church. That's the joy of church. The fellowship. And then there's the ministry. When you hurt and someone comes and prays, someone shows that they care. And here in the book of Acts, it, it says that, that there were people who had financial needs over here and people had extra stuff over here and they were selling their stuff to help these people pay for their financial needs. They were, they were sacrificing what they, they owned to... To help people that are over here. That's the picture of the church. Fellowship and ministry. Discipleship and worship. After one year of marriage, Julie and I moved to Memphis and I served there for a couple of years as a children's minister. And Luke was born and we were 300 miles away from our parents. Then we moved to northern Mississippi and I was pastoring and Joel and Micah were born and three little ones and 300 miles away from our parents. And then we moved to south of Atlanta and we were 600 miles away and that's when Josh was born. We had four little guys and we were hours from family. So you know what happened? The church became our family. The church becomes your family. When you have needs, you, you can't... Mom and dad aren't coming <laughs> as much as they'd love to. They can't, they can't get there that quick. 
So the church became our family. So when it was a three-day weekend, who'd you hang out with? You hung out with your church family. When, when uh, one of your kids was sick or you were in a press time or, and you needed someone to, to be there and watch them, you had to rely on your church family. This is the heartbeat and the warmth of the church that we experience God's love and so we share it and we share it within the context of being a family. And dare I say that throughout my years, especially of living far away from home, I've been way closer to church family than I've been to physical blood family for many years. Because there's the bond that we're in this together and we're a family. The church is essential, not only because of the investment of Jesus and not only because of the impact of believers, but thirdly, the church is essential because of the influence, because of our influence on the world, because of our influence on the world. As we think and look at verse number 47, it tells us, and the Lord added believers daily. Why? Why? Because people were sharing the good news of the gospel. That's why every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. As believers, we are called to share the gospel. We have the only hope for the world. We have the only hope for this lost world. And so God calls us to be people who who don't hoard what we have, but share what we have. And as we think about uh, our life as a church, we are now called to share the gospel with others. We are called to tell people, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and he rose again from the dead and he offers you the free gift of eternal life. Listen, if you don't know Jesus today, as a member of this church, I want to tell you there's only one way you can get in a right relationship with God. It's through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and now Jesus offers the free gift of eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. We Share the gospel. But not only do we share the gospel, but we also show God's love. We show God's love. Matthew 22, you you know the great commandment. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That comes out in our worship. That comes out in our heartbeat for the things that he loves. But then he goes on and says... And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's showing God's love. And then we thirdly shine God's light. We shine God's light. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Where Jesus would look at those early believers and say, You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, that it may give light to all those who are in the room. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Did you know for 300 years, 300 years, From the time the church started till 313 A.D., the church really lived with oppression from the Roman government. With a a press and pressure on them because of the idolatry and emperor worship and immorality of the culture. Things changed in 313 A.D. with what was called the Edict of Milan. That's when Constantine said, now... We are going to show benevolence to those who follow Christ. 
313 AD. However, it didn't take long. When his nephew, Julian, became the emperor about 361 AD, Julian, he's called Julian the apostate because Julian grew up hearing the truth of Christ, but completely rejected it. And his goal now was to abolish Christianity, and his goal was to bring back the paganism of Rome. 361 AD, he becomes the king, the emperor of Rome. 363, he is stricken with a sore, uh, with a spear on a battlefield. And he declares these words. Some say they're apocryphal, others hold to them. He said these words. You've won Galilean. You know who he's talking about? You've won, Jesus. You've won. And though some may say those words are just apocryphal and that that didn't really happen. Can I tell you? Every day. Those who may scoff and mock the claims of Christ as they step into eternity will be reminded of those words, you've won, Galilean. You've won, Jesus. And for us, as those who are in his church, part of his body, we know that in him, we win. We're on the right side. You've won, and we win with you as part of your body. That's our hope. Jesus made a great investment in the church. Jesus told us that that church was going to come, and then that church would impact our life. And then with that, we would influence the world. And all around, we find the influence of God's people making a difference. Could you imagine a world without the church? Could you imagine a world in which darkness will prevail and darkness will win and God's judgment will come? Crack your Bible open and read Revelation 6 to 19. You get a little picture of what happens. And you find, ultimately, Revelation 19, the Galilean comes in as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we win. With that, let's pray. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, this is life's most important decision. If you don't know for certain that if you died today, you'd go to heaven, if you know that you've sinned, but you're not prepared to step into the presence of a holy and perfect God, the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty or take the punishment for your sin, and he rose again and he offers the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. There's only one way. If you're a believer here today, I want to challenge you with the thought. If Jesus loves and is committed to his church, am I committed and do I love what Jesus loves? What does that say about me? So today, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. The band's going to have a song of reflection. Pastor Jerry, Pastor Tim, myself will be in the front. If you have a question about your spiritual life or there's a decision you need to make, or you want to use these steps even as a place to pray, you do that. Father, thank you for our time. Lord Jesus, thank you for the church. May we be people who love what you love. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, 
May they experience the joy of knowing the King of kings and Lord of lords. In your name, amen. Amen.